we do got stuff going on here. I want to just mention that tomorrow night, the uh, Baptist, uh, Missouri Baptist Convention is bringing a group in to discuss issues that the world is discussing. It's being discussed in the media. Uh, it's, it's being discussed um, everywhere. It's about sexuality and gender issues. And so, you know, come tomorrow night at 6.30. Uh, it's a free event. Uh, and listen to what they have to say. Everybody's talking. But does God have anything to say about these topics? And that's what we want to answer. And that's going to happen tomorrow. You know, I'll never forget July 16, 1990. Cindy and I were uh, laying down in our bedroom. We had just put the two little girls, we only had two girls at the time, to, to have a nap. And it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when, as we laid there, uh, the room started shaking. I'm not talking like shaking like a truck just went by. I mean, it was a different kind of shaking. It was a stronger shaking. And I laid there, and all of a sudden, I realized, I think this is an earthquake. What did my dad tell me to do in an earthquake? And I was rifling through my memory, and, and I remembered, oh, he said to get out. Because you don't know how strong the structural integrity is of the townhouse that you rented. I immediately jumped up. I ran across the hall to our daughter's room. I picked up both of my little girls. And I mean, if, you know, when the adrenaline goes, you've got superhuman strength. Have both little girls under my arms. And I run down the stairs and out the front of the townhouses into the courtyard. And I remember sitting there on the, on the, the ledge uh, in front of our house. And just, it, it was just such a, a, the eeriest, unsettling feeling and I looked out in the distance and I saw some tall buildings and I thought am I going to sit here and watch them begin to crumble about that time Cindy comes out of the front door of our townhouses and she says what you're not going to tell me you're just going to leave me in the house okay note to all the men and note to self don't rescue your daughters and leave your wife inside. <laughs> that day, 2,412 people died. It was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake and expanded 70 miles. Buildings collapsed near the epicenter. It was tragic. And then... For the next few weeks, maybe even months, you kind of have this earthquake, I don't know, sensitivity. So, I mean, before you walk into a building, you're, you're asking yourself, well, I mean, we just had an earthquake. Do I really want to walk into this building? You begin to feel like maybe, is thing, are things shaking? And I remember looking at the chandelier all the time, trying to see, is, is that moving? You know, we were designed to need a sense of steadiness and security. I don't like feeling insecure and afraid. Now, some of you have experienced earthquakes in relationships. I mean, you know, we pledge our love to someone for, from now until death do us part, and, and, and we don't even know what's coming. 
We don't know the complications that are ahead of us, and sometimes those promises don't get kept. Maybe even you are in the room, and you, you, you know what it's like to have your family fall apart because an earthquake took place in your home. And you can't put it all back together, and it makes you sad. I remember as a freshman in college, I, I, I mean, here we are, strangers. You know how that goes. We're all four in a room. And one of my roommates had told me that, you know, he came from Kentucky and that, uh, you know, his parents had divorced. And it was very clear as he explained to me the situation that that really rocked his world when his parents got divorced. And, you know, if you're here today and you've been divorced, there's no condemnation here. You know, God is big enough to redeem and help and his grace covers, he, he covers us. He's able to pick us up and show us a way forward. And you got to believe that. you got to keep going. But my friend woke up one morning and he says, man, I had the weirdest dream last night. He says, actually, it was a beautiful dream. Because I dreamed that my family was back together. And, um, you know, it was me and my mom and my dad and my siblings. And then I woke up this morning and I realized that can never happen. We'll never be back together because my mom's married to somebody else and my dad's married to another woman and just can't ever come back together. You know, once again, God is good enough and powerful enough to help you through that. He really is. But there's no denying the fact that that kind of a relational earthquake can earthquake can rock your world and rock you to the core and you find yourself wondering can I really ever believe anybody can I ever trust anybody I mean someone said they were going to love me forever and then they wake up one day and they say I'm done with you and I don't love you anymore someone who was promised to take care of you and protect you and provide for you and and then now they're abusing and they're hurting and you, you got to get away, and this is not the way you expected it to be. We crave security and stability. Sometimes I read stories of people who demonstrate this never-ending, faithful love to the very end. And I, I don't know about you, but it inspires me. I'm like, wow, there's still hope in the world. You know what I'm saying? There's hope for me, too. Maybe I can be one of those people. I read the story of a lady who wrote about her husband, Roger, who had early onset Alzheimer's. Her name was Becky, and she remembered that her husband wrote in a journal entry, and he put it um, near her, and so she read it, and this is what he wrote. Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life we share will be gone. In fact, you and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I am surrounded by you and your love. I don't want to leave you. I, I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and painfully. Becky wrote back, my sweet husband, what will happen when we get to that point where you no longer know me? 
I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me he loved me. The look on his face when his children were born. The father he was, the way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for writing and hiking and reading. His tears at sentimental movies and unexpected witty remarks and how he held my hand when, when he prayed. I cherish the pleasure, obligation, commitment, and opportunity to care for you because I remember you. Whoa. In Matthew chapter, I mean in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, we have one of the most securing, stabilizing teachings ever. Can we trust God? Will he really take care of us now and into eternity? I mean, can we, can we really believe that to be true when so many times we don't experience that in life? And we're going to be looking at this passage. And if you'll pay attention, I, I believe with all my heart that if you're like me, you will leave with a greater sense of security. Romans 8.28 for we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this isn't a promise for everybody. It's for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, which means that you are a person that has a relationship with God and you have surrendered your life to God and are seeking to live out his purpose, your destiny according to the plan of God. It goes on, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. I mean, this is an incredible passage. I mean, the more you understand about the majesty of the gospel, this is like taking the blueprints of, you know, you, you, you walk into a building and you see how beautiful it is, and, and, and then if you ever can get the blueprints and put, peel it back, you're going to see all of the structural um, systems and everything that makes the building secure. Uh, well, this is kind of where we are. God says, I'm going to pull back some of the blueprints and let you understand that you know, you, you think that one day you heard the gospel and you were moved to respond and you did and you prayed and you asked me to save you. But what I want to show you today is that it is a lot bigger than just that. Romans chapter 8 consistently unfolds this glorious, better than you can imagine gospel. It begins with this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You know what that means? That means if you come to Christ, that you will never face condemnation because when Jesus saves you, at that moment, he saves you and forgives you of the sins in your past, the sins that you're struggling with right now, and the sins in your future that, that will even surprise you. But G, this gospel says in that moment, 
When you accept Christ and you are in Christ, from that point on, do not fear. There is therefore now no condemnation. You're good to go. It goes on to tell us that the Holy Spirit of God comes and walks with us and works in our lives and he he does this amazing work of transformation on a daily basis. And then we go on and we notice that it talks about how that God's relationship with us is not he didn't invite you into the company. He wanted to adopt you as his child. That means that you belong to him and, and it's an affectionate, intimate relationship you have with God. You know, we talked about this. I I don't love my kids because of any reason at all. I love my kids because they're my kids. They don't have to do anything. I'm gonna love them through thick and thin, through bad and through good. I mean, they're my kids. They belong to me. And and I have this deep-seated affection for them and a commitment that I can't even describe to you. And God says, that's the way I want you. It goes on, and, and the last time we, we talked about this, we talked about how that suffering is a part of life. But you know what? Even in suffering, God is present. And, and this is the phrase that keeps me going. You know what? Our present sufferings can't even be compared to the glory that awaits. I mean, it's going to be good. Everything's going to be okay. Would you turn to the person beside you and say, hey, listen, everything's going to be okay. Come on, tell them that. You need to be doing a little preaching with me today, Okay. And today we're going to look at the amazing work of Almighty God that we would never have known or understood unless he would have spoken these words to us that secures us. In this section, we're going to be looking at words like foreknowledge, predestination, called. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church has been fighting about these words ever since the beginning. When I was in Bible college, we were not allowed to speak of Calvinism, which is where this discussion landed. Now we call it Reformed theology. And if you're sitting here today and you say, I have no idea what we're talking about, then God bless you. Actually, in my school, it got so heated that there, there was this instruction that we should not be having discussions about predestination, foreknowledge, Calvinism, and these doctrines. We were told not to do that. Now, what happens when the administration tells a bunch of college students, you're not supposed to talk about that? Let me tell you what they do. They talk about it in the cafeteria, in the coffee shop. And you know what? The great thing about being 19 years old and studying these incredibly majestic doctrines of the faith, you think you get it. And you become arrogant and condescending and it's bang, bang, bang as you fight the finer points of all of this stuff. I'm just here to say, arrogance and condescension are not the fruit of the Spirit. To all of you great theologians out there, just take a note. But they're true. I mean, a lot of times we love, you know, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And then we, we like to springboard over the controversy. Okay, we, we love to do this, and maybe I'm guilty. Um, to verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Yes, amen. But let's, let's, do we really have to talk about foreordination and predestination? And, okay. And what I want to tell you today is, yeah, we do. 
we need it. Because it's in the word of God. So let's just dive in. Are you ready? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So he foreknew. Oh, so what that means, people say, is because God is eternal and he knows what you're going to choose before you choose it, then that's why he chose to pick you and you were predestined because he had foreknowledge and based upon what he knew would be your response, he decided to do something wrong. That's not what this is saying. Foreknowledge is kind of a complicated word, honestly. Where do you read about this word? I mean, the, the truth is, this idea of, of knowing for knowledge uh, comes all the way from the Old Testament. Like in Amos 3.2, it says this, On, you only, he's speaking to Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what, what is God saying? Is God saying, you know, actually, I don't, really don't know very much about the Egyptians and the Syrians and the Babylonians. That's not what he's saying. Of course, he, he has knowledge of all of these people. But what he's saying is, of all the peoples of the earth, you're the ones I have a relationship with, and I, I have known you. In Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I mean, God says, I'm, I'm watching the righteous. I know you have a relationship with you. In Genesis chapter four and verse one, it says this, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, I think most of you will get what's going on there, right? I'm not gonna spell it out for you, but the fact is the most intimate, close relationship known to man is the relationship between husband and wife. I mean, it, it is in that relationship of marriage that we have the greatest expression of care and protection and nurture and affection and relationship. It is personal and intimate. It, and God says that's, that's actually, I, I foreknew you. Like more than just knowing you were gonna be born my relationship with you began before you began because I'm God and for the, before the foundations of the world, I already knew you. I've been chasing you down. I've been loving you even before you knew you were you. Wow. Does this boggle your mind? It should. I heard one speaker say, has it ever dawned on you that nothing ever dawns on God? God doesn't look at any of you and say, oops, Eddie, what are you doing here? <laughs> no, he's, he's known about me. God knew you in a relationship sort of way. Second, he predestined you. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Within this pre-existing relationship, God has been at work to accomplish in you his plan and purpose. God has been and will always be working to make you like Jesus. 
Because if you and I could be like Jesus, we would be living at, our, at the best level possible. And he's conforming us. He's not done with you. He's going to always be there for you and with you. You know, um, the one thing that's kind of weird about me is that I actually like to iron my own shirts. And so when we got married, I told Cindy, hey, Cindy, I know you're, you're offering to iron for me, but I, actually, I like to iron my shirts. So I'll, I'll just be ironing my own shirts. Now, I don't want to iron your shirts. I don't want to iron all my shirts for the week. I want to iron them one day at a time. But I find such gratification in the process of ironing. You know, what else in my life actually is so automatically accomplished in such short of a time? You take an old wrinkled shirt out of the dryer, you put it on that ironing board, you fire up that iron with a little steam, sometimes a little water spray, and, and then you start slowly moving the heat across the shirt. Am I sounding like really a weird guy? I know I am, yeah. I ironed this shirt today. I wish everybody cooperated with my plan like ironing does. Now, the one thing I know about ironing is um, it's kind of like how God is at work in our lives. Sometimes it's not always comfortable. You know, when a plotter is making stuff, he squeezes and pressures and cuts and burns in the kiln, the pottery, until he gets just what he wants. And just in ironing, if, if you are so quick that you're going like this, like this, I mean, it's not going to work. You've got to slow, because you, you know why? You've got to let the heat get into the fabric. Some of you are complaining because God is ironing you. And he says, hey, trust me. You're going to be better off when I'm done. I find you so valuable, so important, I will invest my time and energy and effort into predestining you. I predestined your plan. I'm at work in you. God considers you his children. He is shaping and molding. This is a grand plan that began in eternity in the heart of God for each one of us. We are this valuable. Number three, he called. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. He called. You know, you can't really get saved unless God calls. Did you know that? Because you don't know how. You don't even know what you, want and what, you, what you need to want. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. You know, one of my favorite things to do is listen to people's stories of when they got called. Because every single one of you who have been called by God have a different story, different circumstances, different factors went into that call. It's amazing. For instance, one of my favorite writers is Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called Case for Christ and the Case for Faith. Brilliant guy. He, he was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Times. Life was good. He was doing his profession he and his wife were fine until one day she accepted Jesus and became a Christian, and he was ticked. 
He did not marry a Christian. He did not want her to be a Christian. And he, he, he decided to try to investigate how ridiculous Christianity was and present to her how bogus this whole thing is. And so with all of his brilliance, he began an investigation. And the problem was that along the way, as he investigated, it kind of snagged him. And it wasn't so easily dismissed. And he starts wrestling with these truths that he's now discovering for the first time in his life. And and. And you know what God did? God, through his intellect, called him to the point that he had to one day make a decision. Am I going to trust Christ? I can't just dismiss this anymore. And he decided to trust Christ because he heard the call. You know Saul, who became the Apostle Paul? He was a brilliant guy too, but you know how God called him? He was on his way to Damascus. He was going to put more Christians in jail. He hated Christians. He was going to wipe out Christianity. I mean, it was his own personal mission. And as he's going, a bright light appears. And I don't know if the text actually says he fell off his donkey or fell off his horse. I'd like to think he did. But anyway, so let's just go with that, right? You check me out later. Um, It's in the book of Acts. And this bright light comes Saul sees this bright light, falls to the ground, and then he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul replies, who are you, Lord? Uh, The power displayed in that moment was so convincing, he already knew, whoever you are, you're the boss, you're the Lord, you're God, who are you, Lord? And then he hears, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now that had to be a scary moment. Saul was called because the power of God was displayed and he surrendered. You know, when I was four years old, I heard a call. I don't like to tell people I heard this call when I was four because you might think that's impossible, but it's not. I mean, my mom and dad taught me the story of Jesus from the time I couldn't even talk. And I remember it was while sitting and watching TV, the funeral of a president who had been assassinated. It was an awful story. Even as a four-year-old, I got it. The president was alive and in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas, and shots rang out, and he, he... He fell over, bloodied and dead. And now the nation is mourning the death of a sitting president. And I sat there and frustrated that I couldn't watch cartoons, but there was nowhere else to turn. And so I watched this, and I was fascinated with the fact that the president died. And I kind of began to hear the reality of that. And I went to my mom and I said, where's President Kennedy now that he's dead? Her answer was, Eddie, I don't know President Kennedy. If he had accepted Jesus as his Savior, he's in heaven. And if he had not, he's in hell. I don't know him personally, so I don't know how to answer the question. You know, I'm so glad my mom answered it that way. I went back and continued to watch. I'm four years old. This is not a normal four-year-old thing. I'm just going to say. I continued to watch this funeral and I thought in my heart of hearts, I've never asked Jesus to forgive me and save me. If I were to die, I would go to hell. I went to my bedroom, knelt down beside my bed, and offered a four-year-old prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. 
Jesus, I believe you went to a cross and you rose three days later and you did that so we could be forgiven. So would you forgive me and would you come into my life and please take me to heaven when I die? I heard the call. You know, my call was piggybacked on the call of my mom and my dad. My mom didn't grow up in church. Her parents divorced. Her family was falling apart. It was a very painful and difficult time. She had a friend who did know Jesus and tried to share the gospel with her. But you know what? She didn't really hear it until one day she was invited to go downtown Detroit to a, 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 an event sponsored by Billy Graham. And she sat there and she heard the preacher talk about the gospel. And when she sat there for the first time in her life, she heard like she had never heard before. But she didn't respond. But part of what he said was, you know what, this is real important. You could walk out of here and get hit by a bus on the street tonight going home. You need Jesus. Do not put this off. She said, I, I left. I went out to the curb. As soon as I went out to the curb, the buses went right in front of me. I thought, I cannot leave here without accepting Christ. She walked back into what was now an empty auditorium looking for someone to talk to. She went up on stage and went behind the stage and found somebody. And that person showed her how to pray and accept Jesus Christ as her Savior. She heard a call, and now just a few years forward, she's bouncing a little baby boy on her lap, and her, her, her enthusiasm was, the one thing I want this boy to know is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to save us, and she told me about it all the time. My dad heard the call. He went to church all the time. His grandparents lived next to the church. It's a little church in Mark, Iowa. Mark, Iowa is a little town in Iowa. When I say it's a little town, it's one of those towns, literally, if you blink, you'll not see it. And my dad went to church all the time because his mom made sure he went to church all the time. But you know what? He heard lots of sermons but never got the call until one day at 16 years old in that service. I don't know why. He heard and he felt the call and he knew he had to accept Christ. And he went forward, and he prayed. This week in Kansas City, I was at a pastor's meeting, and I spoke to a friend of mine who it was his grandfather who was preaching the day my dad accepted Christ. So I got these two parents that heard the call of Jesus, and they were so enthusiastic to make sure I had everything I needed to know and then the Lord called me. This week we went to uh, Franklin Graham's uh, meeting in the fairgrounds. It was incredible. I don't know, six or 8,000. Gary looked up the capacity of the fairground stadium. And Franklin Graham just preached the same message. It was beautiful, simple and profound all at the same time. And he says, and I'm gonna ask you to pray with me if you have never had your sins forgiven. Here's what we're going to pray about. Here's what we're going to say. And he says, and so, so then he says, so just wait. He says, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't know if anybody around me is going to stand. Sure enough, throughout the stadium, people started standing to their feet. Aren't they embarrassed? Isn't that kind of awkward to just stand up? But they were doing it. 
and they prayed. Do you know what was going on there? God was calling these people he had foreknown since the foundation of the world. And he has a plan for their life and he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Christ and so he issued a call. And when they came face to face with this God who was so incredibly good, they received him. And God wasn't surprised. Maybe their friends were. Because you see, this whole thing is the work of God. I've had people say to me, you know, you know Pastor, I, I, I want to accept Christ, but there's some things I've got to clean up in my life. Okay, here, that's, the problem with that statement is this. Number one, you don't have the power to clean up things in your life until the Holy Spirit lives within you, and you don't get the Holy Spirit until after you accept Jesus Christ. How about that? And God never demands that you clean up your life before you come to him. But I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, let me, let me give you a clue. You're going to all be hypocrites. Yeah, you really will. Yeah. It, I don't know any Christian that's perfect all the time. I just don't know that. Do you know anybody like that? If you do, you didn't get the full story. And our salvation is not contingent upon our efforts. It is the grace of God. It is the gift of God it is the plan of God. Two last things. He's justified. What that means is, the deal is this. Give me all your sins, I'll give you all my righteousness. That's Jesus' deal. <laughs> That's so incredible. And last, he glorified. I'm going to make you into the image of my son, and you will be with me for all of eternity. To enjoy the riches of God's kindness. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. The point here is. Your salvation. Is not all about you. It's about the work of God in you. It's about the love of God for you. It's about the sacrifice of Jesus for you. It's about God speaking to you. Maybe he's speaking to you right now. It's kind of weird. All of a sudden you have this interest. You have this, you're like even wrestling with what I'm saying right now and you, you, you don't know what's going on. And, and, and maybe it's the call of God in your life. I don't know, only you know. And we will know after it all plays out but it's powerful it's the work of a good God that just comes down and scoops us up and takes us as his own and he loves us more than we could ever dream of being loved he accepts us no matter what never gives up on us. You're going to fall and stumble and make bad decisions. Yeah, you, you probably will, but you know what? He's going to forgive you. He already forgave those things. He, he, he's never going to be shocked. And he says, you know what? What shall we say to these things? I love this flourish at the end of the chapter. I got to read it. I just got to. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
Now, in some Baptist churches, when you get a really great statement like that, people say amen. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Yes. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely, he also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're okay. Honestly, This is why we love God so much, right? No one loves us like this. No one is committed to us like this. There is no stable love or relationship available to mankind greater than this. Will you bow your heads?